Hello and welcome to Better Under Pressure. I'm Sarah Milne-Rowe, author of The Shed Method and founder of Coaching Impact. And in this podcast, I talk to leaders from all walks of life about being better under pressure and using pressure for better. I want to explore how we handle pressure in a world that is becoming more and more complex, the impact that that pressure has on our ability to perform at our best and what we do to be better under pressure. On a film set, there is enormous pressure for the director and the assistant director. They have eight scenes to shoot and they've got 12 hours to shoot it in. Each of those eight scenes will take anywhere from an hour and a half to four hours. You do the math, you're already out of time. You're already out of time. And they have it written down. So you're saying your last line, somebody's over there boiling. Got uh, three minutes left before we're supposed to be into the next scene. And you've only got an hour and a half to shoot the next scene. And that's a, a outside exterior shot. And it's raining. So now we've got to get the umbrellas. The actress forgot her line. Okay, the actress forgot her line. Um, <clears throat> okay, now we've got, okay, we're out of time. But I guess we'll just keep going. Okay, well, now we're going to have to cut one of the scenes. And we're going to move it to tomorrow. And tomorrow was already a full day. I'll watch a director who's smiling. Who's like, okay, now we got it. Don't worry. I know how I'm going to shoot the next scene so that we can get it in a one shot. We'll cut time there because they can't make everybody feel there's no time to do what they need to do. Then you have another director who's stopping and going, we've got to get this now. Come on. We're behind time. People move it. This person's like walking slowly with their light or prop or the actor moseying back to set, finishing their cigarette. I mean, the stakes for everybody have to be the same, right? Today, I'm talking to Marsha Gay Harden, an actress with 40 years experience on film, TV and Broadway. Marsha has won many awards, including an Oscar and a Tony in a career that lists cult films like Miller's Crossing, Pollock and Mystic River. She's featured in and been nominated for many of her performances in TV shows like The Newsroom, Uncoupled and one of my personal favourites, The Morning Show. Outside acting, her book, The Seasons of My Mother, a memoir of love, family and flowers, details her bond with her mother as they travel the world and how they dealt with her mother's Alzheimer's disease. She's a vocal supporter of LGBTQ+, and is on the advisory board of Hearts of Gold, a New York charity that supports homeless women and their children. In our conversation, which is longer than normal by the way, Marsha shares why her children go mad when she takes her work home, what the young Marsha would do when her father was coming home, and why for her, the key to freedom is preparation. Marsha, it's so good to have you on. This has been a long time coming, but I'm so thrilled to be speaking to you about pressure. Yes, and right back at you. We've, we've arranged, um, it's been what, months now? A yeah. year? Yeah, I think about a yeah. year. <laughs> okay, so pressure and patience maybe have something to do with each other too. <laughs> It is so nice to be here looking at your beautiful room surrounded by candles. I see we both have our candles. I'm in a hotel room. Yeah. It's very dark. My hotel room is very dark. No, no, no. It's very good. And um, yeah, candles are interesting. I mean, candles for me, the candle is a big uh, calming indicator for me. So I think it's really interesting that we both got one without even any discussion. You know, and it's aromatherapy too. Like if I walk into a place that the smell is bad, that upsets me if I walk into a place where there is no color or beauty. And so I, I came here last night to this hotel because I was going to the Metropolitan Opera this um, last night and uh, there were no flowers. I immediately went out and got flowers and a candle just to make the room a, pay, a place of peace for me because mm -hmm. there were going to be people in and out yesterday, going to an event, 
looking a certain way, hair, makeup, and and uh, I just need my environment to reflect something peaceful for me. Absolutely. Tranquil. I love that. I And I'm so with you. It makes such a big difference, doesn't it? The power of the environment on one's ability to manage. I pressure. think it does. Do you, have you done studies about that to see what the difference is in a person's ability to produce or be creative in an environment that's chaotic as opposed to an environment that seems to be tranquil. I mean, certainly meditation has been something that people have done a lot of research on, and that's uh, a clear way to alleviate, or I would I don't like to say alleviate, I like to say work with pressure. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, it's a great question because um, I think it's so individual, Marsha. Like the mm-hmm. people I've spoken to, and also if you think of something like... Um, Mason Curry's book on rituals with with all sorts of artists and scientists and the rituals are bizarre and the environments are wildly different. And it's fascinating just to know what it is that people do to enable themselves to perform when they need to in whatever area of performance they're in. So I think it's, um, you know, I speak to people who love a bit of chaos, you know, that you look at their Mm -hmm. desk and I'm looking at their desk thinking, how on earth do you do anything? creative amongst this. And they would say, how does anyone do anything creative when it's straight and all correct? So, you know, it's a, it's a very individual thing. Well, that's true. So there's no, this is the way it has to be. It's sort of what works for you, but surely there must be like with noise, right? But then again, I know students, some of my kids are like, mom, I, I work better with a little noise in my ear. Not me. I have to have the noise completely off. I think you and I had this conversation a while ago. Maybe you learn what kind of person you are. If you're driving somewhere and you're late, therefore the pressure's mounting because you want to be on time. Do you turn the radio off or the music off or do you leave it on? And for me, I turn it off. Suddenly the car is in silence because I have to concentrate. The kid's like, what difference does it make, mom, if the radio is on or off? (laughs) You're going the same place. You are, it's just some, you could have it on just to relax. And I think- it's a very odd thing. It's as if by the car being full of my, I've got to get there. I'm going to get there faster. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not true. I mean, I'm learning. And I suppose it's also like, like you've got enough noise going on in your head when you're trying to get somewhere (laughs) that actually having noise on top of it for me anyway, just exacerbates it. I think that's it, but not true for everybody. No, certainly not true for everybody. So, so Marsha, how does, can you remember the first time you felt pressure or certainly when you gave it that label? Can you remember when that was? I mean, I think as a child, you don't know the label to get it. So to, to give to pressure. So it's when you're asked to do something usually in a certain amount of time and you have to perform at a certain level of, of expertise or accomplishment, right? So that for me, that would be the first. And usually that came from in a pressurized way for me, from a parent, usually from my father, his expectations were so high, his standards were so high and the fallout could be, um, so, um, so big in a way for not doing what he wanted or what he said he needed to have done in a certain way. So that would mount the pressure. So consequences, um, make a difference when you're thinking of pressure that's exacerbated. And I think that would probably would have been the first time because I, I can remember as a child thinking, I have to get this done, whether it's cleaning 
the kitchen or the dishes or doing a task or a chore. Um, my dad was off and off at sea. And so he would come back. And when he would come back, the house had to be in spick span condition, like one of his ships. And yeah. Um, yeah, and it was a lot of pressure for us kids to maintain this atmosphere of um, of cleanliness in the house and almost standing at attention like he was used to with his sailors and whatnot. So I would say that environment for me was pressure more than schoolwork, more, mm. more than, yeah, more than the accomplishment of that. Then there's a different kind of pressure, which is the pressure of being accepted. I mean, I think that's the deal. There's all different kinds of pressure. I always think about it in terms of accomplishment. Um, how, but I don't think about it so much in terms of what I think the younger generation feels it much more deeply today is in terms of what do my peers think of me? How do I appear um, and in this room? What are people thinking when I walk into the cafeteria? Mm-hmm. In fact, I so don't think about that because I, I mean, I certainly felt it as a kid, but that wasn't the thing that had the most consequences, right? So I dismiss it almost. Who cares what they think? Get in there. And, you know, they're not thinking about you. So I can be almost dismissive, like I said, of it. Yeah, yeah. So how does pressure turn up in your life now then? In a million, million ways, Sarah. If any person has a family or has a job and a home, um, understands that there's many, many different levels of pressure all the time. For me, there's work pressure. And while last night I was uh, in a seemingly beautiful environment in this hotel across from Lincoln Center, people bringing in a gown for me to wear to this event last night, there was a time frame that we had to get the work done, which the work done is putting on hair makeup, putting on hair, getting the look just right, getting the gown. Is it going to stop raining? Will my I went with my eldest child, Yulela. Will Yulela be done? in time will the shoes work for you Layla so and because then you're going to go perform it's showtime and as soon as we step out of the hotel it's showtime and there's people Mm. taking pictures will I pose right will I stand up and finally put my shoulders back Mm. and so that when I look at a picture I like the way that it looks am I representing the person who's letting me wear the dress um, by showing it up like all of that am I representing the people who invited me to the opera who want me to come and chat with people and be be friendly I mean, it's a it's a job it's a performance and it went fantastic it was great but it is pressure so i could have said no i don't want to go and sometimes i will i think i just don't i don't i don't want to spend the money because all of that costs money too i'm paying for the hotel i'm paying for the hair i'm paying for the makeup i'm paying for my for the gown and so i can think i don't want to spend the money i don't want to go through it. I don't want to shake hands all night. I don't want to do that. So that's one form. Mm. Another form is the form that any any homeowner will understand. I have a, um, a country place on a lake, pretty rustic, and I've had an employee quit recently. And I replaced it with another employee and that employee just quit recently. So in fact, two days ago. So I woke up in the morning, my dock was flooded. It had been raining all weekend. And I mean, like, cats and dogs raining. Mm. My dock was literally covered over on the lake with water. Um, I could see water beginning to seep into my basement just from the saturation level. My worker quit that morning um, because he did not want to be told what to do. Um, So pressure of a woman running uh, an estate and in, in fact, knowing more than this person, sort of educating him on how to, to plug in a solar panel, 
I mean, all of these things, and then knowing I need to replace it because I'm going, finally the strike is over. I've been on strike. So that my, yes. my union's been on strike. The writers have been on strike. So that means there's been a half a year of income not coming in, but yeah. I still have kids in college. I still have um, bills to pay, yeah. people to employ. So all of those things are, are managing. And then you, and then you prioritize the pressure. If I do a certain thing, I'll be okay. Financially, I can, sell off something. I can open up a savings account, you know, get into a savings account if I need to. What I couldn't do is leave the property unattended for the winter. Mm -hmm. Pipes will freeze. Mm -hmm. People will fall in the snow. Mail will not get delivered. So I needed a replacement. And by the end of the day, I had a replacement. So the Mm -hmm. pressure of that day was crazy. So I think what happened that day, because I was thinking about you, is saying, What a great lesson for me about what did I do? Because I usually just think, oh, you just take it all in stride. I think technically my brain prioritized the most important thing and things that I could delegate to other people were delegated to other people. What I need to do is sit down with a new person and interview them in a relaxed way and not be desperate. I think a lot of uh, people, especially women, Mm -hmm. hire people and keep people around them who are less than capable, you can tell almost right away, they're not, uh, it's not going to be a great fit. And then you hope, yeah. you hope something will change. You hope that if you just teach them enough, it will change. You mm. hope that if you're just nice enough, they'll love the fact that mm. occasionally I bake zucchini bread and bring them a piece of zucchini bread and that will make them want to work, you know, even harder, <laughs> like whatever it is you're hoping. And, and it doesn't, you knew right away. I read something that a CEO, it's like one of the most important things you can do as a CEO is if you feel that the person's not going to work, let them go immediately. Yeah. Don't yeah. hold on. Don't hold on. Just hire well. So that was the other day. So I guess the first thing I could say was prioritize. And then in that moment, I thought there is nothing you can do. And when you meet this person, you need to be calm. Mm. You need to really engage with them so you can really understand who they are. You need to breathe. You need to put the phones away and just engage with this person. And that's what I tried to do. How do you do that, though? I think that's, I mean, gosh, I feel exhausted listening to your day for a start. But I think what what's so interesting is that maybe not to that extent or maybe in different ways. Like last week, I was talking to um, a general, you know, who who is literally in a life and death situation in a campaign right. that goes on for months how do you prioritize and make decisions when there's mounting pressure or compounded pressure that is coming in on all directions? I'm just interested in how you do that, Marsha. How do you suddenly make that switch? Because a lot of people I work with, and I, you know, I notice it myself too, sometimes there's a barometer that I just find incredibly difficult to switch when it's got so high. And I know many people I work with find that very difficult to switch state like that. They know it, but they don't know how to do it. Uh, Well, I don't know that I've ever analyzed it and torn it apart in terms of how the brain works, how the brain does it. How do you choose in the, in the moment that we talked about at the lake house, maybe it does become tantamount to life or death not the same but which thing would fall apart the most yes well the 
the home would fall apart the most. I have to leave and get back to work. I know I'm not going to be here. I need to trust somebody to be there to, like I said, literally make sure other people don't die. Um, I'm curious what the general said, how he does that. Well, he was saying that you have to train down. So he was basically saying that in those sorts of situations, part of the drill in order to manage the life and death situations is to be able to train down so that, cause you're always assuming that somebody might well be killed. So mm-hmm. no one's there forever. So if you have that assumption that no one might be there forever, then you have to train down so that everybody knows that when there's a crisis or a situation that there's somebody that you can rely on. And what I'm hearing in your story, and I think in most human being stories, we don't have the support network around us that's been drilled. And he uses this word a lot in managing that sort of life and death situation. They come to us left field when we least expect them. And, you know, when you've got the combination of uncertainty, i.e. you didn't really know what what was going to happen to your property, um, high stakes, like there's high risk, Mm -hmm. and, um, and volume, like you've got all these things. It's not just the property. So when you have the volume, high stakes, and uncertainty all in the same playpen, then that's those ingredients really do exacerbate our sense of control. I think that's true. I'm not sure what train down means. Does that mean delegate? Yeah, delegate it, means, it means people, yeah, you've got people you can rely on. And what I'm hearing in your story is you weren't sure you had people that you could rely on. 100%. I could rely on my assistant to do certain tasks, to make certain phone calls. I actually could rely on my child, Ulayla, to jump in. If I said, yes. I need you to be there tonight, I can rely on you to jump in. But we, what we don't have is people trained yes. as we train down, trained yes. for this, to, to jump in at this moment. That is true. We don't yeah. have that. So I definitely delegated. I definitely tried to understand which was the most dire situation. And then, um, and then you start, and then I, I stood up to it. As soon as the guy I was interviewing left, I don't think I've ever moved around so fast because I had to be in the city by a certain amount of time, but I had to go down to the end of the lake and clear out the beaver dam. There I was on the ATV flying through the mud, um, heading down to the beaver dam with a rake. I was like the wicked witch of the West (laughs) knowing that the following night, I was going to be at the Metropolitan Opera <laughs> in, a, in a gown. And yeah. I had I had mud splattered all over me, Sarah. And I was <sighs> going to take it, was going to take a shower before I went to the city. And as the time was ticking and I had to do this and do that and do this, I said, okay, I'm not showering. No one's going to see me on the way no. in. I'm going to get in the car, muddy, and go. And then the next morning, I was up um at seven. With you, Layla, dropping you, Layla, off at a welding school and sitting in a place in Long Island City with a bunch of welders. Um, and then that evening at the opera, <laughs> it was quite I mean, a day. It sounds it. I mean, the other thing that the general was talking about, I, and it was interesting to me, is how do you look after yourself? You know, how do you give your, yeah. what I would call, you know, the, your shed priority you know you sleep your you, how do you look after yourself and i was intrigued when i was speaking to him about how do you do that in a war situation what and in a way those sorts of days that you're having like how do you also the life that you're currently involved with and there's so much responsibility i'm hearing in that story but also what i know about 
your responsibility to your performances, your responsibility to your family, your responsibility to your life, and that you are the main person in charge of that. Um, How do you find space for you, Marsha? I don't. And that's a problem. I will. I know that's a problem. In fact, on that day, as I was panicking and I called a person to recommend somebody to interview, that person said, are you taking time for you? It sounds like you're not. I said, I don't have time for me. I can't do it. And they said, take you know, at least five minutes. And then the next day they said, how'd you do? I said, I got one minute. I did one minute. They said, mm-hmm. great. Today will be two. And they sent mm-hmm. me a beautiful picture of a tranquil Buddha posing, you know, in a, in a pond. And I thought I do need to put it almost put it on the calendar. So I have it. Yeah. I think driving, I find a lot of peace driving. I usually will listen to a podcast, almost no music, sometimes just quiet, just very, very quiet. And that's, I like to drive that way. Um, But I don't, I don't. Mm. that's the answer and i know i need to it's interesting because there was a couple maybe i want to say eight years ago i was in the middle of turmoil and my life was changing again i was finalizing a divorce and there was just a lot going on and i was actively in therapy trying to find time for me and my i remember i was in this gym class and as I was doing uh, Pilates, which I really don't like, but I was learning it, doing Pilates on this table, somebody came to the window and was knocking on this window. With I was there with the instructor. It was my friend's gym and kind of wanting to come. They were creating a disturbance, wanting to come inside. And I immediately like set up to, to handle it. Hmm. And then my therapy jumped into my brain. I went, this isn't on you. No, This is not your gym. There's other adults in the room mm. that can handle this. Mm-hmm. Your Pilates instructor. They didn't seem kind of aggressive and bold and commanding, these other two people. They didn't jump in and tell them. They didn't handle it as fast as I would have liked it. But when I stopped and sat back and thought, someone else can handle this, they did. Maybe not exactly like I would. Maybe better. Maybe they handled yeah. it better. Maybe softer. Maybe more gently, but I, that's one thing I will say to myself is there are other adults in the room. This is not on you. You Yeah. Everything. You don't have to be the fixer. And by certainly not doing that, I'm back to me focusing on what I need to focus on, which in that case was um, exercise. Yeah. So yeah, I I do pottery, as you know, I do pottery. I'm a potter. And so that's something that I do. And I have a kayak. And I like to take it out on the lake. I love, love nature. I'm a big observer of flowers and birds and nature. And this summer I noted because of all the balls in the air and all the juggling, I thought you've been here at the lake for a month and a half. It's the middle of a strike. You're supposedly not working. Why haven't you been out on the lake? What are you Mm. doing? Mm-hmm. What are you what are you cleaning? What's mm-hmm. so important that you're cleaning this thing and, and you're not giving yourself that that space? Mm-hmm. And I you know I think being aware of that of those patterns is really good. I went to this event the other night. It was for women who changed the game and they were honoring Billie Jean King and Wonderful. her it was the 50th anniversary of Billie's famous um, equal play equal pay. And in that evening, they talked about her famous pressure quote. 
Yeah. And pressure is a privilege. Yeah. Pressure is a privilege. It comes to those who deserve it. And I thought, I, I really like that. I'm going to remember that for Sarah, although you already know it and I'm sure you've, you use it, but I thought, what does that mean? That, that other people, you know, it was more about a perspective because it didn't mean that in order to be great, you have, you have pressure and you don't get pressure if you're not great. That's not true. Mm -hmm. People have pressure all the time, but it's certainly how you look at it and how you embrace it, how you lean into it because you can't and and how you monitor it. If the pressure is too much, it explodes. And if it's not enough, the balloon doesn't rise. So how do you get it to rise? And if you want it to hover, that's a certain amount, you know, how do you, how do you get it to be manageable or to go away? Like, how do you do that? And it's about monitoring it, I think. I think it absolutely is. And I think a lot of the the work that um, I'm involved in with, with leaders who are under pressure, different varying amounts of pressure coming from different directions. If we're not careful, you, you, you it becomes a habit that that's how you expect every day to be. Right. And so therefore the interruption, I mean, you you sounds like you've got awareness. Awareness is the first stage. And then it's like, so what do I do with that awareness? And how do I be as deliberate about my recovery as I am about my getting through it and doing it and growing from it. You know, it's like, you know, that this podcast has got at the heart of it. How do we help? How do we turn that balance, as you said, from the pressure balloon so that it's in an enlivening and enriching, growing pressure that keeps us moving and getting better versus a debilitating pressure that reduces us and makes us feel, you know, exhausted. But do you know, Um, part of that is just simply physical as well. That if you're this, you know, I can feel when yeah. something comes up and it's this, there's, there's no room for humor, <laughs> right? And yeah. when there's no room for humor, you know, it's, it's about to implode. Yeah. Uh, and when I see people, it doesn't matter, men, women, leaders, people who, okay, well, we got this positivity, mm-hmm. numero uno importante so positivity is fantastic but i just physically a smile the shoulders go down the breath comes in you you do that kind of dialectical behavioral work where you go okay i'm in the room i see a wall over here there's wallpaper i'm in a hotel you know hotel that this is where i am i can feel the table I can smell it. You do this dialectical grounding exercise. Mm-hmm. So you're not only in your head exploding, but, but you, you smile yeah. I, and then you're relieving the pressure for other people too. Yes. Yes. So I think absolutely. You can change the environment of the room, but the timing is still important. Do you know what? On a film set, this is such a good example. On a film set, there is enormous pressure for the director and the AD, the assistant director. And the pressure is they have, let's just say, let's just say they have eight scenes to shoot that day and they've got 12 hours to shoot it in and it's going to be an hour lunch. So now you're down to an 11 hour day and here's the crew ready to go. Each of those eight scenes will take anywhere from an hour and a half to four hours. I mean, you do the math, you're already out of time right? You're already out of time. How do you, and they have it written down. So they're going, you're saying your last line, they're like, somebody's over there. 
boiling. Okay, we've got uh, three minutes left before we're supposed to be into the next scene. Uh, because in the next scene, you've only got an hour and a half to shoot the next scene. And that's a, a outside exterior shot. And by the way, it's raining. So now we've got to get the umbrellas. Um, and we've got, okay, the actress forgot her line. Okay, the actress forgot her line. Um, <clears throat> okay, now we've got, okay, we're out of time, but I guess we'll just keep going. Okay, well, it's good. Okay, now we're going to have to cut one of the scenes. We're going to cut one of the scenes today and we're going to move it to tomorrow. And tomorrow was already a full day. So this timing pressure is really fascinating to me. Then I'll watch a director who's smiling. Who's like, okay, no, we got it. Don't worry. We got it. We got it. I know how I'm going to shoot the next scene so that we can get it in a one shot. We'll, we'll, we'll cut time there. Don't, don't worry. We got it. We got it. Because they can't make all of the actors and everybody feel no. like there's no time to do what they need to do. Then you have another director who's talking and going, we've got to get this now. Come on. You know, we're by time. People move it. And I'm thinking in my head, yeah, move it. This person's like walking slowly with, you know, whatever their light or prop or the actor moseying back to set, finishing their cigarette. I'm like, let's go, go, go. Cause that's me. I'm a yeah. more go, go, go person. If, if I say I want it now, I'd prefer to see you running uh, to bring it. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I know. I mean, it's, it is true because the other feels like resistance in a way. Yeah. So I'm curious, how do you get people to step up to a plate of high performance all the time, all yeah. the time? Yeah. And the answer is you don't. I mean, the stakes for everybody have to be the same, right? Yeah. But what I'm hearing in that story, and, you know, I've sat on sets, as you know, as an invisible person, but, and that seems to be the norm. For me, there's a basic thing about anticipating the day and the timing involved in a day. So in a way you're setting up the day to run late just by the schedule, because it's an unrealistic schedule. Yes, one hundred percent. That that's that's one thing that could you could argue could alleviate the pressure if somebody was really looking realistically at at the day. Right. Um, I mean, we've got this phrase like you know, anticipate to mitigate, but that doesn't seem to exist in my experience anyway. When I've I've sat on film sets, and you've just described <laughs> exactly the experience I've witnessed right. on the whole. So there's that. There's that. But then there's also how do you how it's contagious or, or you rebel against it. Like there's some sort of interaction between the way the leader, i.e. the director, mm -hmm. is managing that pressure. And I think this is such a leadership um, issue here is about how do you hold the set? Sure. How do you hold that? And also how do you as an actor not get caught up in that energy? It's very hard. I tend to... If I'm seeing that energy happening, I will say, stop. We have to stop. That's that's not helpful. Stop, stop that. So I become a leader in that moment yes. as well to, to try to maintain what I consider professionalism. Okay. Yelling at actors, yelling at people, yelling at crew. It's not professional. It's not going to help. So I will ask things to pause. I do think anticipation is really, really important though. When mm. you first started speaking about this, I thought, oh, my niece just said to me, you live in anticipation, Marsha. The way you think is always imagining, uh, not the worst, but imagining the fullness of the day and the time. Mm -hmm. When I'm driving, I'm driving seven cars ahead. I'm watching seven cars ahead of me where they're turning and how it's going. And I think I learned that probably from the, from that 
anticipation of my father coming home, which is mm. slightly dysfunctional on some level to say mm-hmm. this, this, you know, anticipation, it, it, it was a dis- dysfunction, you know, he was a, a drinker. And so that allowed a kind of a dysfunction. So when you live like that, you're always anticipating what could happen, what could fall off the wall. You're a little bit um, high alert, high, there, high alert. I like that. You're on high alert a lot. And that's, I think how I, how I tend to be. Yeah. Um, so anticipation, but I think anticipation is helpful because I don't think what we're saying, and I'm not quite sure, maybe you're just, you're curious about how do people handle pressure and still live and love their life. Mm-hmm. But I thought also there was a part of your um, purview that was about how do people handle pressure, live and love their life, but also be successful in whatever endeavor they choose to be successful. Mm-hmm. And you really don't, find success by sitting on the bench because it's more comfortable on the bench. I totally agree. You have to get in there. You have to push the sleeves up. You have to be willing to work. You have to be willing to fail. You have to be willing to fail to know what the boundaries of, of the job are the boundaries of your abilities with the job uh, to reach outside the box. But mostly it's that idea of, of, working hard to get what you want you have to work the extra hour you mm. you can't be like you know there's a lot of baby showers to go to. there's a lot of fun things to go do in life and if that's what you want that's what you want but if you're trying to start a business or mm. be an athlete or mm-hmm. run a you know run a podcast that takes time yeah you had to make a business you had to make an enterprise you literally had to do mountains of paperwork to start the business that is your business. And when you get into it, it's a lot of work. Yeah. And that means it's a lot of pressure. That means it's going to take your time. And yeah. are you willing to do it or not willing to do it? Can, are yeah. you up to the job or not up to the job? Yeah. And I think what you're really raising here is, and this comes up a lot in these conversations, is the sort of higher purpose. You know, mm-hmm. you, you're prepared to go to do that because something is better. So, you know, when talking to the general, it's about keeping a community safe and saving lives and bringing a community back into their order, own autonomy. You know, if you don't, he was he was saying, if you cannot hold on to a purpose that's beyond self-interest, then the mm-hmm. pressure becomes too much. What I see is making a big difference to people who push themselves um, into out of out of their comfort zone in order to grow is because there's a bigger purpose. Right. something that really right. fills their heart with what they want to do. And I think but, when we have ways to connect to that, then it keeps us going. 100%, which is why I think it's so important what you're saying about the general. He's not standing up there on a soapbox, most likely talking about the reason they're at war, the purpose of the war, why we should feel good about winning the war. He's talking about community. Yes. Everybody can relate to community, the community of we're here for each other, the community of we get through this together, the community of the better I am, the better it makes you, the leave no man or woman behind thing that yes, if he was up there pontificating about, you know, let's just say the Vietnam War or Bosnia or anything, then you're into an area where people are like, "Mm, I don't know that that's my value. I don't know that that's why I'm here. I don't know that I believe in the Vietnam. I'm curious if people during that time, if they had a hard time motivating people because the the higher mm. thing that they were all supposed to believe in, people were losing faith in, right? But they yeah. weren't losing faith in each other. No, they weren't absolutely. Losing, right? Absolutely. And this, this is interesting, I think, Marsha, about a set. And I've always thought about this is 
what I what I experience when I've in my limited experience of being on set is where's the unifying rallying call of all of us? Do you feel this idea of community on set could release and relieve some of the pressures that you witness and experience on set? I think it does. I think I've seen it happen. I think that when everyone is racing to make a scene work, let's just say that involves dialogue, someone running down a sidewalk in the rain, a car going by and splashing up water, the actor turning to the camera and going, oh, one more splash or whatever, and then running past the camera up the steps of the Capitol to bring the document to the president or like whatever. Yeah, yeah. That shot involves a lot. And when that shot is, and everybody has to be on full gear with the time ticking running out, it has to be in full preparation mode to make it work. And at the end of that, if there's not a moment of acknowledgement for the work of everybody mm-hmm. down to the hustle and the, the, of the, of the prop people and the beautiful artistry of the camera work and the, you know, the splash of the stunt person in the car, like whatever, that acknowledgement brings people together. Validation brings people together. Uh, calling out people's expertise. That was an amazing moment that you just did there. That that brings people together and people are happier to show up the next day. Yes. Um, I do think validation, I do think bringing people together for the cause that we all believe in, which is doing a good job at work, making an interesting story whatever the story is, mm. making a fun shot, having a good time with it, but seeing each other. You want to be seen. We want to be seen, right? There is so much in what Marsha's sharing here in relation to film and TV that resonates more broadly. I love the way she describes the role of the director and the assistant director as holding the set. What a useful way of looking at leadership, especially in moments of pressure. And if you're listening to this as a leader, Do you know the key ways you hold the set? Most of the inspirational leaders that I know constantly evolve how they hold that set. Let's go over some of the ingredients that Marsha talks about as being key to holding the set. Acknowledgement and validation. Calling out people's specific contribution and expertise. Noticing and taking time to acknowledge and celebrate the parts that add to the collective success of what we're trying to achieve together. The thing is, if we're not careful, pressure starts to boss us, pushing us to go faster, to stay alert for the next challenge, rather than slowing down, taking time to notice who's contributing and how. When leaders pay attention to doing this in spite of the pressure, they're more likely to increase the motivation and bring people together as a high-performing community that will be ready for anything together. What Marsha is highlighting for me here is if you're holding a film set, an organisation or a team as it goes through high challenge, some common ingredients can make a measurable difference. One, bringing everyone together by creating a story, a narrative, a cause that everyone believes in. This is about actively boosting purpose energy, the energy of meaning to make something happen together. Two, having a fun time with it. Yes, pressure can be fun when it's shared and led with confidence. And a key message from leaders on this podcast is the power of laughing under pressure. Three, the final ingredient that runs like a vein through all of this is the powerful fuel of feeling seen. 
I remember as a teacher when I used to talk to challenging students about what made them attend some lessons more than others, one of the key themes that freed them up to learn was when they felt truly seen for their individual strengths. In Billie Jean, she said, pressure is a privilege and it only comes to those who deserve it. And I'm, what do you think about the word deserve in that sentence? Um, I, I think deserve, deserve for me feels out of my control. Choose feels in my control. Mm -hmm. So I think pressure is a privilege. I love that because I think it is, it's almost like the Seth Godin quote. When you say, oh, I've got to do something, he says, reframe it to, I get to do this. Mm -hmm. I think so too. Which feels like, that feels like, yes, remember, you've got two legs, you're alive, mm -hmm. uh, you get to do it. Mm -hmm. um, deserve feels like, Something's happened that's been out of my control to mm -hmm. get that pressure. But I see the sentiment within it because the sentiment is choose it. Yeah. Lean into it. Yeah. Yeah. Look at it, look at it as a privilege. Yeah. Think of yeah. it as a privilege. Yes. I'm privileged to have this on my shoulders and I can handle it. And I'm going to land this plane. That's the pressure, and yeah. I'm going to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. and and I suppose if you took that lens to your day yesterday. You know, you could reframe it and say, I'm lucky to have an estate. Yeah, with it comes a lot to go on with. You know, I'm lucky to have yeah. the work that I have. I'm lucky to be, you know, we could do that. I mean, it's much harder to do that when we're feeling pressure because it's hard to, to, to reframe something sometimes. But I think that moment where you were saying a reset, when I think we reset, we can see that and we can reframe it and it can mm -hmm. reduce the pressure and it can allow us to think, okay, I can rise with this pressure. Mm -hmm. I can you know, grow. I, was, I, I was in the, um, and I didn't think about it in that way exactly. I thought about it as this is what you must do. But what I thought is it's not the end of the world. You're <laughs> going to find, you know, you're going to find someone who is a better fit. That's what's going to happen. Yeah. And you're going to move quickly and it's going to happen today. But as I was thinking all that, I was planted in this spot in the garage where I'd been kind of relabeling these solar lights and had been trying to, trying to organize the garage. And as this person drove off in a huff and I said, if you quit, don't come back because I thought I'm not going to be dysfunctional. You're a grown up. If you quit, don't come back. Because I take you at your word. You're an adult. You okay? Goodbye. But there I was, still writing. Solar lights with electrical plug. Solar lights with solar plug. You know, outdoor lights like whatever. Outdoor lights with electrical plug is what it was. And I stood there finishing this task. I had to finish this task. Go do one or two more tasks before I could go. Okay. Now we're gonna close the garage door. We're not going to do any of the stuff you thought you were going to do today. And we're going to go focus on this other thing. It was definitely a reset to say, finishing this up. Yeah. And now we go accomplish the rest I, of the day. I think that's so, that's so interesting because I think you're right. It goes back to the beginning of the conversation where we were saying it's all individual. I spoke to somebody who was, um, a very senior in Lego and she, one of her mechanisms is to just go into the kitchen and make a cake or make something. Mm -hmm. You know, she couldn't solve the problem. She couldn't solve what she was 
needing to solve. So she needed to go and do something very perfunctory where, you know, task-based, easy to do, understand how to do it, very straightforward. And for her, it was exactly the same, Marsha. It was like, I'm just resetting. And often it's so much science, isn't there, about how we solve things by doing something incredibly mundane or, you know, we solve something in the shower or we solve something when we're walking the dog or, you know, we get our best ideas when we're just, you know, looking at a river or. Well, it's It's funny to try to figure out how much of that is um, putting something off the decision that you need to make. But in a way you could look at it like that. You could go, the pressure wasn't quite enough on some level, like you're resetting. But as you're resetting, you're taking time. So in anything time-based, the pressure is still mounting. My uh, child, Ulayla, has said to me, my house is never so clean as when I have an assignment due. And it took me a minute to think about what is what are you talking about? Oh, they have an assignment due. And instead of doing the assignment, they're cleaning out the drawer that they didn't get to for a year. Suddenly they're doing all this stuff. And I think, what are you doing? You're mounting pressure is what you're doing because you need to work almost like with about to explode, that's when you're going to get your assignment done, which is a, hopefully they'll learn not to do that. But it it is both resetting, they're thinking about their project to do, but they're yeah. doing this other stuff yeah. and pressure is mounting, mounting, mounting. There's many ways to look at that to say that's a good thing. But then you, you also say to your kids, um, just sit down and do it. There's <laughs> nothing like just sitting down. Writers, they say, sit down and write. You in order to get the job done, you have to write. Jalita is just up at RISD, really rigorous art school. And a girl who'd been there, um, I met her in a cafe or something. And she said, tell your daughter that the second they assign something, do it. Mm. Don't put it off. The second they assign it, do it. Put it over here. Mm. So there's different, again, schools of how we reset and what we reset with. Yeah. Um, how we get what we need done. I'm trying to think, do things in the moment now. We don't need to talk about them for half an hour. We can we can do things faster in the moment. Yes, yes. If I were to say to you now, you know, as an actor, you must have a very clear preparation process for accessing a character. If I take the type of people I work with, they're often performing, but it's part of their job. It's not their job. <laughs> And it's often the bit that actually can sometimes throw them because what they might typically say to me is, I can't prepare too much because if I prepare too much, I over-prepare it's not organic. myself. Yeah, right. yeah. And and I I mean, from my experience in, of drama, you know, you can't you get to a point where you you you've prepared and you are so free because you have prepared. So mm-hmm. I, it's a, it's a very different. And I'm just wondering, in terms of the pressure of performance, which you're under a lot, and you know, on set the pressure is immense, isn't it? Uh, for all of the reasons you've just shared and more, what's your process for managing that specific pressure of performance? I tend to prepare. I don't feel like I can play if I don't know my lines. So preparation first, mundane is knowing lines and building a character. All of that work is like, um, it's like the roots. You never see them, yeah, but they're the roots of the plant that, and it tells you what that plant is going to look like. Yeah. But so I like all that preparation to be done that I like to know my lines. I don't like to just go in and wing it because I feel like you can see my brain going, wait, what was that? And then within that, to bring it to a new organic place um, 
I don't, I don't know that people have studied enough the mind of mimicry, the mind of the actor, and that the neural synapses of pulling up emotion. And I don't scientifically know how to articulate what that is to keep it fresh. You give yourself maybe a new intention. You can say, okay, I tried it this way where I really wanted um, the guy to give me a kiss. Now let me try it another way where I'm like, take it or leave it. Same exact lines, take it or leave it. Mm. Let me try one where I'm um, where I'm I'm trying to get my lipstick out as I'm having this thing with him. But do I, you, know, you give yourself these different little intentions to play so that it'll make it different. Mm. But uh, I tend to, on everything in life, err on the side of being prepared. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It makes me feel more free, actually. It makes me feel more organic and that I'm not chasing something. Because the other thing is, if you're not prepared, you go through the experience and it's over. The take is over. The scene is over. The shot is done. And you think, oh, I most of that time was about trying to get my lines out. I didn't experience anything. Did What did we do? And it is, it is sculpture, right? It's not just this. Yes, there's something magical about it. I'm not going to lie. There's something magical about acting and being in the moment but it also is you're sculpting you're sculpting it's also very technical and you're sculpting a scene and you're sculpting the high and the low of the scene you're sculpting the rhythm of the scene you're sculpting are we going to play you and i are going to play a scene where everything is maybe elongated and then you're somebody who comes in bop, 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 bop. like mm-hmm. how are we going to play that scene for the rhythm comedy it's all about the rhythm. So it's very, very technical. And the better prepared you are, and you people have these discussions. Okay, I'm gonna say this line here, and then you come in boom boom undercut. Okay, great. And then you know that's that's part of it. It's yeah. like a musician. Yeah. I remember when we met and we had a very it stuck with me a lot actually. The idea that actors spend a lot of time in other people, mm-hmm. accessing other people. Do you ever borrow from the way you do that and take it to the way and the variety and the difference you might want in your own life? So just now, just when you did that whole elongated thing, suddenly your whole pace of speaking, Marsha, mm-hmm. shifted and you appeared different to me for a minute, for a you know, right. nanosecond. And I, I'm really intrigued as I absolutely understand from the actor getting into the life of somebody else is it ever reversed? Um, usually in an unfortunate way. Right? Okay. That um, I don't consciously bring, or actually if I consciously am bringing an actor, a character into my life, it's so that I can get the rhythm of them better. And it usually has to do with an accent. So if, so an accent means somebody from a different place, a different, you know, when I was playing Lee Krasner, um, Actually, Lee, Lee is one example, but there is another example. There was a woman I was playing in a film with Chris Walken and Morgan Freeman and Bill Macy, and I think it was called Maiden Heist. And she was, you know, she was from Queens. She was this character from Queens, and she had coral nail polish. And when I was first approaching her, it was only the accent. It was just the sound. And if you don't bring it home, and talk like that while you're putting breakfast on the table or while you're doing laundry or whatever it is. If you don't bring it home, mm. then it's 
the only words you know how to say in that accent are those words. Then you don't know any of the rhythms. So there was a time when I would bring home um, on purpose characters like that. So the kids would hate it because it'd be like, you want coffee? Who wants, what do you want for breakfast? Who wants this? I'm not doing that. They'd be like, mom, just stop it. I'm like, I can't stop it. It And it's funny, but I would, but it helped me because it, it made me know that I could go, I can't stop rather than saying, I can't stop it. Right. I could, I realized I could relax and you know, you could get those little rhythms when it seeps into you unwillingly is probably um, when you're playing someone who's super emotional and I'm wanting to do research on this. I listened to a Ted talk once about it because they were talking about these, the neurons and the neuron of, of mimicry and that the brain can't tell sometimes when you're lying. So if I'm going, mm-hmm. and so that's going to make all kinds of heart pressure things happen. For about four or five years, I was playing someone super, super angry. Uh, when I was doing Gods of Carnage on Broadway, every night I was going through this bombastic anger that this woman had. Well, my brain doesn't necessarily know that that's not real, that I'm acting it. Mm-hmm. Because I'm in it, I'm feeling it, I'm I'm really crying, I'm really yelling the heart rate is really going up. That's a lot of stress. And I thought, how interesting, because when we look at elongated life and better life, one of the first things they say is stress, Mm -hmm. get rid of the stress in your life. Like it's raising your cortisol levels, all of these things. So I thought my brain doesn't know that Mm -hmm. I'm pretending. Mm -hmm. So I'm up there screaming and yelling. My brain thinks I'm getting angry in this real way every night. And I, and, and sometimes this um, physical sensation or these the hormonal changes, the brain changes, I would bring home with me because mm-hmm. I would, I would still have that surge in my body. I'm not, not, I'm not cuckoo. I know I'm an actor, right? But it would, I would bring it home. So you might say, you know, where the groceries go? I don't know. You know, I would, mm-hmm. I would find that my fuse was really shorter. Yeah, and I really had to go. What can you do to the 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 um the simple thing would be to go like leave it at the office. That's not what it is. It's not leave it. It's great if you could, but in my body had come this surge of other things. And so how that needed a physical sensation, that needed meditation, that needed exercise to just get that out so that I could be present um more with the family. I think this has so much resonance, though, to a lot of daily pressure for people. Mm-hmm. Like I've I've got a client who will have a day that's like you had yesterday, or, or you know, the relevance of it in their organisation was high pressure. Mm-hmm. The way he managed this was he would stop in his car in a layby, about about a mile from his house, and just recalibrate, reset, uh, breathe. Uh, for him, actually, it helped listening to some classical music. And he used to say to himself, I'm now going back to the people that I love the most in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he had to really work on that, Marsha. And you know, mm. he wasn't he wasn't acting, but he had spent his day or he could spend his day in high pressure environments, high pressure meetings, high pressure conversations. The business mm-hmm. was under a lot of pressure. It was seeping, as you say, into his physicality, into his yeah. whole being. And he had to find a way of 
moving compartmentalizing. Out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm not, not a great compartmentalizer. Right. Women are typically not as good at compartmentalizing as no. men. Men are much better. We're we typically are, are a more of a more holistic approach to things. Yeah. I did the same thing. And I'll also think about, I mean, think about people bring getting kids off to school at a certain time in the morning to get them on the bus and to get their homework done, and get the dinner on the table. And, oh, yes, you have your own business to run as well. And blah, blah, yeah. blah. You think about those things. To me, that's, that's as pressure as any CEO in an office place, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And, and after a while, because I did the same thing and it had to do with noise. I don't like a lot of noise. Noise makes me cuckoo. Me too. And I would have to go, I would have to, before I walked in the door, I'd have to go, okay, you're going to walk into that house and the kids are going to be making noise because that's what they do. Kids make noise. So if you expect it, anticipate it, yeah. you'll be okay with it. Rather than walking, you wanted to go, shut up, everybody. It's too loud. Turn the music down. Do like control the environment. Yeah. And I, and I think for me, when we talk about pressure, I, I can talk about it in a much happier way now in retrospect, because I think there was a time in my life where I wouldn't have even been able to be on this interview because you would have said, how do you handle pressure? And I would have said, I don't, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so at that time, I needed to just control everything. The music has to go down. The house has to be clean. That it it has to be this organized structure of of life for me. And and now uh, I can anticipate the spills, anticipate yeah. the chaos, and know that that's not that important. You don't need to blow up over that. You don't need to teach a lesson every time somebody spills the milk. Well, if you're being careful, you wouldn't have spilled the milk. You know that we will always don't need. You can yeah. just be like. Okay, moving yeah. on. Or even better. Okay, sweetie, you clean it up. Anyway, as I was saying, like it doesn't need to, whoever does it can handle it. Yes. Um, I think there's so many things that you've covered today in terms of anticipation, resetting, Reset. um, prioritizing, delegating, and uh, creating a value system for mm. your for, for the people that you work with. Yeah. I wonder, do you feel do you feel that there's a harmony of pressure amongst, regardless of the job? So the executive who came home and yeah. had to go home to the people he loved, yeah. is his pressure any different than mom putting the meal on the table and trying to get the kids to bed at a certain time and make sure people live these happy lives? I think what you're raising for me, <laughs> and it's funny actually, because I was just talking to somebody earlier on about the pressure of um, not immersed in one pressure, but the pressure of all these different things happening at the same time, which um, I think is, you know, when you described your day, it's, it sounds very familiar. I think there's something around the pressure that mounts up, but it's one pressure, but it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the responsibility that you're holding in that pressured situation. And then there's the pressure of managing a family, right. managing a job, managing my health, managing right. menopause, managing, right. you know, sick elderly parents, managing, getting, making sure there's shopping. I think, I think there are different right. elements of how pressure turns up in your life. Um, and I think a lot of the time we're helping people feel agency in that as opposed to feeling 
they're responding to it and they don't have a role to play in it. And believing that actually, if we can have that reset moment or we have those ways and techniques of remembering, you know, back to Billie Jean, that pressure is a privilege. There's so much I can get from this if I really take control, manage it, find ways to deal with it. I think it's very enlivening, but I think there's a barometer. And, you know, one thing I talk a lot about, or people talk to me a lot about is, that wasn't pressure to me. And yet I'm managing a team right. who seem to be spiraling in all sorts of different directions mm-hmm. around the pressure. When to me, it's not pressured at all. Mm-hmm. So there's that whole thing as well, when you're dealing with other people's pressure and you're thinking, really? Well, sometimes dealing with other people's uh, fear or whatever it is, uh, alleviates your own. Like you can step into a position of leadership because again, you're controlling it. I think when people feel out of control, they feel a lot of pressure. And so the executive in the car, the general on the field, a mother and or father with the family, when it feels out of control uh, and the time is ticking, I mean, time is pressure, right? Time is pressure. So there's that ticking clock. And if you haven't anticipated correctly and you haven't scheduled it, it it all can go like that. One of the things we the the general does, and that people at work naturally do because they have the system set up around them, but that women and men at home don't do, is delegate because they don't they think take it on. A simple example is someone's coming in to visit from an airport, and we think, oh, I'll get you. My nieces do this all the time. You're coming into the airport. They want to alleviate the pressure for the person coming in. So they'll jump down in the car in the middle of a busy day to go to the airport to pick somebody up. And I'm always thinking Uber, right? When, yeah. But to have the person Uber to, to get home or or sometimes if you can't get a, you know, send a car. But it cost, it cost $100 to send that car. We should save that $100. But how much does it cost you in terms yes. of your time and what you get paid on a daily basis or whatever, or the time that you need, like... If a housewife or houseman or houseperson were on a salary, what would their average daily rate be, mm-hmm. right? Are they making 50 bucks an hour? They should be at least. If they were on a salary of 50 bucks an hour and they're going down to pick someone up from the airport, there went 200 bucks, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. it's an hour to get there, an hour to get back, an hour to wait, it's 300 bucks or whatever yeah. it is, 150. So you have to value yourself, value your time. And sometimes I will think, I don't want to spend the money, but in order to give myself the time, it's worth this money to spend. Or my worker will go, hey, should I drive up to someplace a half an hour away to mail this letter? It's about valuing your time and, and putting money on your time. Yeah. It's also valuing your energy, Marsha. Yes, like, you yes. know, it's like time we, and energy. Yeah, I, I watch. We all get completely panicked if we haven't got any juice for our phone, or we've forgotten the charger. I've, I see people in conferences run around like mad rabbits trying to find somewhere to plug their phone in because right. it's running out of battery, and yet. I see them bypass lunch. I see them, you know, work ridiculous hours. I see them exhausted. We don't think about ourselves as a battery that needs recharging. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yes, because that's that's still, and you're not accomplishing anything. So it feels <laughs> yeah. right. It feels scary. The stillness is 
hard because it's not, it doesn't feel active. And I think when we think about stillness as active, it's very helpful. Yes. Yes. I think so. Well, particularly if you're a movement junkie, you know, if you're yeah. a fast junkie and you're, you're really needing, you speak fast, you move fast, right. you do a lot. It's, it's a good practice. I mean, I think this is the practice, isn't it? To, to open your range. I'm thinking, you know, pressure is about range and capacity. It's co- completely growing and honoring your range and capacity. And even the general would say that there are situations where he's thrown a curveball, likely he would say, where he didn't handle it correctly. Yeah. What he has in his in his backpack, which is what most of us don't have, is training. The drill and the training of the people. My father was on a plane. He's in the Navy and he was training um, in in the San Francisco Bay Area. And he's in a plane uh, training to be a fighter pilot. And he's up in the plane and the engine goes out mm-hmm. and he has a choice. He can eject from the plane, mm-hmm. but the plane may crash onto the Oakland Bridge and kill other people. But my father's life would be saved. Or he can steer the plane into the water or there's sharks as well, uh, but he can steer it into the water and uh, not kill anybody, but most likely die himself. And in this this split second decision, he's um, making these decisions because he's been trained. And he said that what saved him in the water later was his training. The yeah. plane hits the water. You do the this, you do the that, you do the, the, the door goes up, blah, 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 blah. like, you know, hundreds of things, his body and mind dead because he'd been trained and he lived. He did not become a fighter pilot. My mother begged him not to. And so he did not become a fighter pilot, but he did these things because of his training, because somehow the brain knew, the brain knew them. Then there's another example that the body, the brain and the body are just amazing. Mm -hmm. And the, and when the survival of someone else is is at stake. And I know I was in this moment with my youngest child, I'm sitting on the edge of a bed and she, I'm getting ready to go do a play and she jumps over to me, but I was on the edge and we started to fall. And I'm going to tell you this, this all took place in about a millisecond, a fraction of a second. We started to fall. And as we fell, I could see her head was heading for this metal railing on the side of the bed with my full weight on top of her body. So there was no way. I mean, her head would have smashed into it and she would have fractured her spine or her skull, whatever. In this millisecond, my body flipped over. I don't, uh, honey, I can't even touch my toes. I'm that out of shape, right? Like I'm not <laughs> that person. So my body went kaboom and she was on top of me and I hit the thing. I don't know how my brain knew to do that in that second. No. I didn't tell it to do that. I didn't have anything to do with it. It was a boom, turnover and I was hurt, but she wasn't hurt. And the, my point about it is it had nothing to do with me. No. So the brain also will take over. And oh, it has us. a massive survival yeah. uh, pull, doesn't it? When we're in yeah. real danger or somebody we love is yeah. in real danger. Yeah. It You're absolutely us. right. And, and, and I think, you know, back to your point of your, your father, I think that's what I'm really believing more and more is that you train out of pressure in order to be able to practice in pressure. Yeah. I mean, and a I, sports I, team I, would tell you that Billie yeah. Jean would say that, right? Yeah. 
Because but at some point the you tell the theater. Right, that's what I was saying. That's yeah. why the lines of the preparation, that's yeah. training, right? Yeah. So that you can, if I know all of the moves on the tennis court and here, you know, I know what to do. My, my body takes over. Yes. My yes. brain takes over. I, I don't have to guide it. Yeah. And so for me, if I know the lines to a play, the same thing, my body takes over all of a sudden I can something fun and yeah. different, uncanny happened that I did. And I don't know why. And then the play or the moment grows from that. If yes. you know, if you're prepared. Yeah. If you're prepared and you have the discipline outside of pressure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think this is what first got me into this inquiry really is I, I think I told you that I was teaching when I was very young and I was teaching first or second year in, in a very challenging school and a, and a, somebody in the classroom, I was teaching Elizabethan drama and this year nine boy basically told me in no uncertain terms, just how boring my lesson was. And I, you know, and I was like mortified in front of 29 other people. But the thing that kicked in Marcia was my breathing that I had learned to manage my violin exams so that I could control my bow when I was nervous. Oh yeah. And it, it automatically, I just started to go right breathing, 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 give me my choice back because mm -hmm. I was, I was red. I was sweating. I was shaking. Mm -hmm. I felt like humiliated. I had 29 other pupils in the classroom watching me to say, what's she going to do next? And I just took, I didn't think about breathing. Well, I just automatically got my breath back. And then I had a moment of choice. Mm -hmm. um, and you actually, I actually said, Wayne, I really didn't get up in the morning to do my job, to turn up and be, quote, effing boring. Tell me how I can make this lesson more, more interesting mm. to you. And that was a transformational moment in my teaching career. And also it was a transformational moment in that class, my relationship mm. with that class, because then we had a discussion. He wasn't expecting that. Right. He's good at shouting. He's good at getting chucked right. out of classes. He's good at being thrown out. He's good at being shouted back to. But me going back and going, tell me more. How can I right. make this lesson more interesting to you? Completely blindsided him. And what um, did he say? Did he was, was he able? He to didn't respond? say very much, but he didn't say. I don't think he. From what I remember, um, he didn't say anything at that moment. But the rest mm -hmm. of the class did, and that they said, Miss, you know, what has Elizabethan drama got to do with our life? Mm. And actually, we had a really productive discussion around what. Yeah, what did. I needed to think about the power of Elizabethan drama in relation to their life, not just as a module that said Elizabethan drama, you need to know and uh -huh. teach that. And so, you know, as a young teacher and challenging comprehensives where you had, you know, a lot of refugee status children coming in overnight and you had, you know, a lot of about a hundred different languages spoken in the school. I needed to listen to those children to understand how I could make the lesson relevant. Well, and then it became, I'm sure, exciting and real and changed your style as a teacher. Definitely. That sounds like such a great lesson, which is something we we only briefly touched on, which is taking people in, seeing yeah. people, hearing people. But but you wanted to be better, Sarah. You didn't want to be right. No. You wanted to be better. Yes. And the the same, it sounds like the same uh, situation. You could say how people were at war. That would be the lesson. We're here because of blah, blah, blah. That's the lesson. But the community and how we can all go through this moment together is the true victory, yeah. right? Yeah. And so what a, what a beautiful story about that child and, and hearing him and validating him and growing yourself. It's lovely. It was. It was, it was a really important lesson to me. And, and that's when I thought, that's the drill. That's the power of the drill to give you that moment of choice. 
to allow mm. your father to make those considered choices in the moment where he had a life or death situation. Mm-hmm. He'd been drilled in dealing with that. So it's back to anticipating in a way, isn't it? It's, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, so I think, you know, we can train for pressure. Uh, and I think our barometer of pressure goes up the more we train for it, you know, the more our capacity to deal with it gets expansive. Okay, let's slow this down a bit to understand what's happening in these moments of pressure. There is huge power in our impulsive instinct. It can stop us from walking out in front of a fast car when we're deep in thought. And it can, as Marsha's story with her daughter illustrates, allow us to do extraordinary things to protect our children. It's the fast and instinctive primeval part of our brain that I call the reptile brain and is incredibly experienced at sensing the unexpected. Its well-intentioned primitive impulse will automatically take over and shut down any conscious human brain involvement because it's decided it's not necessary. And this is when we feel we have no control over it. As Marsha said, I don't know how my brain did that. Sometimes our impulsive responses make sense and sometimes they really don't. The two stories that Marsha has just recounted show when our instinctive impulse can be massively helpful. And with her father's story, when it was high risk to let his primitive response have full control. His training, his drilled practice, allowed him to override any less helpful primitive responses. Feeling in control under pressure means giving the more conscious part of our brain the chance to focus whatever unexpected distraction or shock comes our way. Life and death professions will drill practices that automatically kick in each time they encounter pressure. Sports teams and performers from all walks of life do the same. They do this to mitigate the risk of their instinct and their impulse unhelpfully taking over. Research by Amanda Ripley, who studied ordinary people who survived some of the most harrowing experiences emphasizes just how important it is to have ways to control our inbuilt and instinctive reactions. Now, hopefully, most of us are not dealing with harrowing events too often, but when we're faced with increasing pressure in our life, we can create and drill a pressure practice by anticipating, preparing, and rehearsing for it. This might mean having a pressure practice for dealing with a particular person or a particular context, but it's worth the effort. I work with many people who get infuriated when their instinctive responses take over unexpectedly, as if they have no control. An important part of managing pressure for better is to know the drill that's going to keep you in a place of choice. We can all train for pressure if we really want to. If there were two things that you would want to offer people listening to this podcast who would love to be better under pressure, what two things would you offer them? Well, it's funny because... The last two things we just said are actually quite important, time management and planning. Um, And we've been kind of saying that all along, Mm. Uh, time management and preparation, I would say. So we'll go back to preparation first to be prepared. And within that, I believe anticipatory and all of those behavioral elements go with that. So I would say um, preparation, I I think delegation. We can delegate to friends and we haven't talked about the value of friendship in terms of understanding pressure. And a lot of us, especially in this modern day and age or isolationist on some level, we reach out with our friends to do things, to go here, to go here, but not to um, have this base of support for two 
two women chatting with each other, two guys going, "How boy, this is how I handled this situation. And what, what do you think? And I'm really quite bad at that because I have wonderful, wonderful friends, but I feel like I could be a better friend. But here's what I know. I can count on any one of them in any moment when I'm under pressure. I can call that person and say, this is what's going on. One of the problems with pressure is it can, it literally skews your brain, right? It's your brain is hot, it's boiling, your body temperature can change. You flush like you did the, the performance moment. Here we go. And so they can help you recalibrate perspective. Um, so it's hard to say, to, again, preparation 100%, but would I go delegate? Delegate super important in terms of handling it. Would I say reset? I feel like reset, of course, but somehow I'm going... What continually helps me is my friends. And I, I'm stunned that at the end of this you know, interview, that that's kind of what I'm coming up with because all of those other things are on me and I can do it. I can do it. I can go to the airport. I can do this. I can be the person. But in those moments, I called my friend to say, oh yeah, to ostensibly to say, hey, if you know anybody, recommend somebody to me because I got to hire somebody. But what I really now know I called her for was to validate me, to hear those words. You're okay. And by the way, take a minute for yourself. Any of my friends that I call, that's what they're going to do. They're going to hear me. They're going to jump to help me. And you don't have to be a person of financial privilege to have a friend. You can say to a friend, listen, I need help today. Because I mean, you have to know you need it. You have to be willing to ask for help. And if you can, if you can pay, that's great, but it's not, not the only way. Although let me be the first thing money alleviates pressure for sure. Money can alleviate some pressure because you can buy time. You can buy a sense of time. So it's a hard to call down, Sarah. I love that. I think it's such, such a beautiful point and a hugely underestimated point. And I'm really interested in the fact that you said, and it's hard to ask for help. Uh, hard, very hard. And I think it is for you a lot. Feel like it, yeah, it's very, very hard. A, you don't want to bug them. You don't want to bother them. You don't, they have a busy day too. Da, 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 da. But most people would be very, very willing to just have the conversation. This person, I said, is it a okay time for you? They were at work. Yep, go ahead. Are you taking time for you? The thing that is available to all of us is to ask a friend for help and to prepare. And you can prepare. I love that, Marsha. Thank you so, so much. What a great conversation. Yeah, I want to see the your your wrap-up, your your list of priorities. <laughs> I think, <laughs> but I think it's a great, it's a great message that you're that you are um doing, Sarah, to, to give people um agency. Yeah. To give people agency to not even for me to handle pressure, to rise, to be the best people that we can do, be. I and agree. if that's what you want, it's literally, it's not about just sitting on the bench. No. It's about understanding what you are and what you could be. There's this beautiful quote, I think, that Isadora Duncan mm-hmm. had given mm-hmm. to, you know, that one, Sarah mm-hmm. Bernhardt, it's about the voice and that only you in this world have the voice that you have only, there's only one you. And if you don't listen to that voice, and if you don't allow that voice to sing, so to speak, 
the world never hears it, the world never knows it, the world never understands it. So that belief in oneself and confidence, you can say, oh, the most important thing for confidence. You can't just tell someone to have confidence. You you learn it, you grow it, you nurture well, it. Result, isn't it? It's a com- confidence is an output. It's something that happens because you've got the courage to do something. Yeah, you have courage to do it, and you you may if you fail, fail, fail at something like a pole vaulter, I would fail so badly I would not have any confidence in myself. But if I trained, maybe I could do it at some point. Again that training, that drill down, that prep, but yeah. yeah. But you have to have the confidence or the courage to try, to try. Yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, it's like, I've just started, uh, I've just, I'm going to run a thing called legacy, a, re- a little retreat, Marsha, just, this is a uh, sidebar, but it's, t- it's to your point. Um, I read a, p- a quote, it's an American poet. She writes, what what are you going to do? What wild and wonderful thing are you going to do with your precious life or something? I mean, it's like, and I, I'm speaking to a lot of, particularly women actually, in their sort of early to late 50s, who've like maybe done corporate jobs all their life and they're thinking, now what? You know, their kids are bigger, they're launched, they're sort of independent right. adults, and they're thinking, I could have another... Th- God blessing, I could have another 30 years. I want to do something that's got more meaning. I want to, I know, I want, what else could I do, basically? They're on this mm-hmm. inquiry. So I decided, I've heard this so many times, and men as well, actually, not just women. And I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to set up a retreat and I'm going to, I, I, book, I booked a retreat. I've, I just booked it because I just thought, I'm going to do it. The only way I can do mm-hmm. this is if I book it. Right. Uh, So that, what did you just do? What you just did was you took the first step, right? And that first step is meaning sit down at the table and start writing. Yes. Yes. You can't get anything done sitting on the bench. So you book it. Now you mounted pressure for yourself. I have gave yourself pressure because now you have this event and you need to live up to it. It's really super valuable. It's a valuable, valuable thing that you did. Yes. I ultimately want to find these adults who become legacy movers in their ambition of what they want. They've got a little community of each other, wherever they are in their life. But also I want to take a percentage of what they pay and put it into a fund for 20 year olds, because Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I am having so many conversations with 20 year olds who have either started a job and they feel like, is this it? Mm -hmm. Or they want to do something probably like like Hudson, like Matty, who are, you know, going down the creative avenue, but they don't quite know how they're going to make it, but they want to make it. And they're very dedicated to making it. I'd love to have, give them four days away just to think, come on, let's create, let's make it happen. Let's have, I'm going to, this, this place is going to have a chef. All of your shed is going to be taken care of. There'll be, I'm um, in, I'm in, <laughs> you know, it's like, why don't we have this space for people? Cause we're going so fast all the time. People need space in a in a magical place with beautiful food, with a place to walk, to journal, to talk to one another, to be stimulated by each other. And I think both our, us at our age and younger people need that space. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm just going to have I a love that. Providing I think it. that's beautiful. You know, um, Sarah, first of all, I think that's beautiful. And I think you should sign me up if I can okay. be amongst the 20 year olds. Um, mm. But I see failures of the kids in a relationship or in a class or in moments that are so important to them and they get back up. And I think for me, that's the third thing I would have to add is get back up, 
get back up, try again. It's okay. Get back up. And I, and that is, that's character. Yes. That's not how you handle pressure. That's character. And people who ultimately can, I think, handle pressure well and have all of these things we've talked about from training to anticipation to preparation, you have to have the character yeah. to also forage ahead, to believe in yourself. And that is a, maybe that's what that reset does. It builds this character where yeah. you will go, I will believe in something greater than myself. And I will get back up and I will sing this song and I will lead this army and I will, you know, make sure it's a, I will tell this story on set in an environment that feels good and safe for people. I will bring agency to women and 20 year olds. Like that's, yeah. I think that's character. I agree. And I think it's beautifully synchronized with your point about friends as well, because the one thing that helps you get back up often is the validation of somebody who believes you, who believes yes. you. You know, just get back up and keep training and yeah. keep drilling until you win the tennis yeah. match or the, the you win the part or whatever it is. Yeah. I love that, Marsha. Thank you so, so much. Really fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Better Under Pressure with me, Sarah Milne-Rowe. If you enjoyed it, please do subscribe and let us know what you found useful or what you'd like to know more about. Our aim is to share as many examples as possible of what people do to manage pressure for better and turn it into a positive relationship. If you're interested in any of the practices mentioned, check out my book, The Shed Method, or alternatively, you can find us at Coaching Impact or me on LinkedIn and Instagram. Better Under Pressure was produced by the fab team at Smart Cookie Media. Thanks so much for listening and until next time, goodbye.